Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we tell stories of people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm Leslie Chang. Today, we have two segments. Our first is kind of a Gen Anthro throwback. It's a long-form interview. And our second story is about the unusual fate of the Navajo tribe. So let's start with the first interview. A few weeks ago, our producer Mike Osborne sat down with archaeologist Ian Morris. And Mike is here in studio with us now to help us set this up. Hello, Mike. Hello, Leslie. <laughs> All right. So I think the best way to introduce Ian is by starting with his social development index. So what what is this? Just help us understand it. Right. So, OK, a few years ago, Ian wrote a book called Why the West Rules for Now. And the whole idea was to explain why Western powers have dominated global politics and economics for the last few centuries. Now, to get at the answer, he comes up with this index that puts a number value on how sophisticated and complex different societies are through time. Okay, so he, he's basically trying to quantify how advanced a society is at any given yeah, moment. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And uh, and really, when I say over time, I mean this is all of human history. Everything from Neanderthals to iPods, from hunter-gatherers to curly fries, <laughs> from Australopithecan afarensis to Taylor Swift, oh from God. Homo erectus to disco. <laughs> Okay, so so what does he do with those numbers? Does he, like, plot them out, put them on a graph? And if he does, what does that even show us? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, oh, let's step back because a lot of time and work went into creating his graph. And it turns out you can do a lot more than just tell the story between the East and the West, you know, as broadly defined. There's more to it than that. Um, in, in a sense, this graph is like the big picture, the overall shape of history. Okay, so, and maybe it's obvious, but why is this relevant to the Anthropocene? It's relevant in a couple ways. So, 
Ian and I get to this pretty early on in the interview, but when you look at his graph, like it looks like an Anthropocene figure. The lines are kind of chugging along normally until about the Industrial Revolution when all of a sudden you get this crazy exponential increase. Mm -hmm. So the shape of history changes radically beginning about 200, 250 years ago, like a lot of other Anthropocene figures. But the other thing that's important is that we talk a lot about the role of geography and how humans use nature and what that means for the grand shape of history. All right. Thanks, Mike. So let's get right to your interview with Ian. Awesome. So in your book, Why the West Rules for Now, you present a social development index as an attempt to to quantify and and give the shape of history. So why did you develop this index and, and what does it actually measure? Well, about 10 years ago, I started to get very interested in this, this big debate people were having about why, um, why why a pretty small group of nations around the shores of the North Atlantic had come to dominate the planet in the last 200 years in a way that you know, the world had never really seen anything like that before. And there were all these debates going on, and some of them were getting pretty nasty. And so I felt like the best way to get people all on the same page, so we're all talking about the same problem, it was with some kind of quantitative numerical index. And so what were some of the key variables? I mean, how do you... It's called the social development index, yes. right? And so I know I know it was in part modeled after the UN's uh, economic mm-hmm. index. The but human development index. The human yeah. development index, thank you. But so, you know, how did, how did you start whittling down the variables? And was part of your thinking here... Uh, it's got to be things that I can actually measure mm-hmm. in the, you know, archaeological and, and even perhaps geological record. Yes. Yeah. I mean, well, I started off by saying, well, OK, we're, we're comparing Eastern and Western history across thousands of years to see um, what it yeah, was the modern West's domination of the world. Is this something that was determined back thousands of years ago? Something happened in very early times? Or is this just some very recent accidental thing that, that came along? And so I was that forced me to ask myself, well, what is it that we would actually be measuring to make this comparison. And that's how I ended up with this, this name, social development. Uh, I felt like basically what we were looking at here was um, the ability of different societies to, to master their physical and intellectual environments, to get what they want from the world and kind of impose their wills on the world. And that's what this question really came down to. I boiled it down to four variables rather than the UN's three variables. And the, these four, um, the, the core of them was energy capture per person. How much energy do we take from the environment? Which means you know, the, the food that you eat, the, the liquids that you consume, but also you know, the energy that goes into cooking and the preparation of your foods and the building of your houses and the moving of goods around. And um, this is something we can measure very precisely in modern time. And it's something we know a surprising amount about for hunter-gatherer societies as well. But then I also felt it was important to look at some of the ways people use energy and what they do with the energy, which have a huge impact on social development in the sense of um, you know, being able to get what you want from the world and do what you want in the world. And so the second of the things I looked at was um, the size of the largest community communities, largest settlements within a region. And so basically using urbanism as a very, very rough index of the level of organization a society has reached. Then the third one was information technology. So um, the, the techniques you've got for storing information and communicating information, which of course have varied enormously over time. And then the last of them sort of sadly has to be in there is war making capacity, which again is something we actually know a huge amount about this, both from historians and from archaeologists. And so then the challenge, of course, is to 
roughly measure these things from the evidence available over long periods of time and compare different regions. And I convinced myself, at least, that I could do this. But there is a there is a, a quantification here, and there's a score of of, of a thousand, and, and you know each variable gets each equal weight. I know it's difficult because this is audio and radio, but do your best to what were the x and y axes of, of your figure and 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 a couple lines. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, imagine the scene. Yeah, the the the, the horizontal axis is just measures time. It starts over the left hand side, fourteen thousand BC, so shortly before the end of the last ice age, and then the right hand side ends in the year AD two. Then on the vertical axis, you've got points on the social development index from zero up to 1,000. And 1,000 on the system I developed, 1,000 was the most that could have been scored by any society in the year AD 2000. But 1,000 points, there is not a cap on what you can score because, of course, you can go on developing beyond where societies were in 2000. And that's exactly what has happened. So potentially the, the index can keep going up and up in the future. And then what the lines look like. Um, that depends entirely on where you're looking from. So if you look from the year 2000, basically it looks like almost nothing happened through the whole of history since the end of the Ice Age until about the year 1800 AD. And suddenly at that point, um, the uh, eastern and western lines both turn almost 90 degrees and shoot almost vertically up from the bottom axis, up till 1800, almost flat, then straight up. Just straight exponential. Yeah, just leaps up into the air at that point. And that's because that's when the Industrial Revolution begins, around 1800. And suddenly the amount of energy in the world explodes and people can start doing all these new things with all the energy and just totally transform social development. And so in a lot of ways, the people who say the Industrial Revolution changed everything, they're absolutely right. But if you don't start in the year 2000 and look back, if you start at an earlier point, then what you find is if you take away these really, really high scores you get in the years 1900 and 2000, then you suddenly see that this picture that like nothing happened for almost 16,000 years, that's completely misleading. There's a lot going on. It's just that when you squish all the numbers down to be able to fit the high scores on the graph, you can't see the early stuff anymore. So when you open up the graph, you start to see a lot more going on. And one of the big things you see is that Western social development starts rising before Eastern social development for all sorts of reasons. But right by about 13,000 BC, the Western end of Eurasia began to pull away from the Eastern end. And the Western score is higher than the Eastern for 90% of the time since the last Ice Age. One of the fun things you get to do with this index is project it into the future. Yes. How, does, yes. <laughs> how does that work? I mean, what, what assumptions do you have to make if you want to look into the 21st century, you know, with the, the context of the, last, of the previous 14,000 years? Yeah. So what I did... I came up with what I felt was a very conservative, not not totally implausible uh, set of assumptions, which was to say, let's just assume for the sake of argument that um, social development carries on rising in the 21st century in East and West at the same pace it was rising in the 20th century, which is not um, not necessarily going to be true. In fact, there are a lot of reasons to think it won't be true. But it's you know, a nice, solid, conservative assumption. If you make those assumptions two big things happen, I think. One is that you see the Eastern development score gaining on the West. And the, the wonderful thing about my index is you can come up with an exact year where Eastern development overtakes Western development, which I probably shouldn't give the game away because now people won't want to buy the book. But the year is 2103, which is a fantastic prediction because it's very precise. You'll know if I got it wrong. But also I will be long dead before we get to 2103. So I have to pay no price for this. So great prediction 
in that way. But the other, the, the, I think the really interesting thing about this prediction, you know, very conservative assumptions, but the place where the lines cross on the vertical axis of my graph is around 5,000 points on the index. And right now, the, the highest score in the world in the Western core is up somewhere around 950, 960 points. So to get from the Ice Age, you know, people painting on cave walls in southern France, to get from that to, to me sitting here in the studio at Stanford, that costs you about 940 points. If you play the trend lines out for the next 100 years, the next century sees the scores rise by 4,000 points, more than four times as much change as we've seen in the whole of history since the Ice Age. And that, it seems to me, that's a very conservative assumption, but it's also kind of a mind-blowing assumption. One of the points you make in Why the West Rules for Now is that, I, I love this phrase, geography determines social development, but social development determines what geography means. Yes. Um, can yeah. you can you explain that a little bit further and uh, maybe give some examples? Yeah, anyway. sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I came up with this formulation. It was really kind of the, the answer to the central question in this book, Why the West Rules for Now. Um, the question there was, you know, why did this small group of, of what we now call Western nations around the shores of the North Atlantic come to dominate the world in the last couple of hundred years? And some people said, oh, it's, it's all about culture. You know, Westerners have this superior culture, makes them better than everybody else on the planet. And some people said, no, 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 it's all about religion. Or maybe it's all about great leadership. Or maybe it's all accidents. Or, I mean, the, the list just goes on and on and on, the, the different sort of factors and possibilities people came up with. And um, looking into this, I uh, increasingly felt that what had happened was that geography had been the single big driver. And if I had to have a one-word explanation for Western domination, I would say it's geography. And the reason I said that was that um, Western social development had begun rising higher than that in any other part of the world at the very end of the last ice age. And the reason this is happening, this is about 13, 14,000 years ago. The reason this happens is that when the world warms up at the end of the last ice age, um, the the, the western end of Eurasia is the part of the world that has the densest concentrations of plants and animals that can be domesticated, uh, basically meaning pla places where you can invent farming. And because the westerners have got the densest concentrations, they begin farming first and begin developing much more complicated societies before anybody else in the world. Their development begins rising. Um, but if the answer to the question was simply geography, your geography drove everything, then what we would just see as a result would be Western development is higher than any other part of the world throughout history. And once they get this head start, the West carries on being out in France. And this was where the, the second part of the equation, I felt, came in, that your geography drives development. But as development changes, the meaning of geography changes as well. And so um, initially, uh, there's just uh, the, the places that begin to see their development going up are the places where there are big, um, big animals like cows and sheep and goats that can be domesticated, plants like wheat and barley that can be domesticated. But then quite quickly, it's developed quite quickly, over a few thousand years, as development goes up, um, your villages are getting bigger and bigger, you start to realise, oh, well, what we need now is not so much... Um, to be in the place where sheep and uh, and barley had evolved. What we need now is access to really big rivers, like the Tigris and the Euphrates or the Nile River, where you can move people and goods around. Information can be moved around. Armies can be moved around. Um, and we can transplant the agricultural package of sheep and goats and wheat and barley. We can transplant that to Mesopotamia or Egypt. But once we get there, these great rivers allow us to drive development even higher. So yeah, as development goes up, geography changes its meaning. The big 
rivers become the really important things. Then a few thousand more years go by. Now what you really want is not big rivers, but complete seas that you can control and move things around on. The Mediterranean Sea begins to become the core area in the West. The Roman Empire unites the whole Mediterranean. Development explodes when they do this. More thousands of years go by. Um, eventually, by about 500 years ago, people realize, oh, we're now at a, a stage in development where we can begin to master entire oceans. We can tie together complete continents. Development again changes its meaning. And Northwest Europe, which has always been this kind of cold, backward place in the past, all of a sudden, this place has an opportunity to tie together the old world and the new world. Because it's uh, Northwest Europe is a lot closer to the new world than East Asia is. Northwest Europe suddenly sees development exploding. So, you know, a country like England, where I grew up, through most of history, just a terrible, wretched place to live. It rains all the time. It's like a big lump of coal with a little bit of soil scattered on the top and a lot of rain. Um, that is terrible until you suddenly discover how to use coal to power machines machinery which can make things move and unleash these unbelievable amounts of energy, then abruptly England is catapulted into dominating a global system. This process plays out and plays out. Suddenly it's North America which is now in a best position to begin to dominate this system. Then you get into the late 20th century. Now development has reached the point that even bigger oceans can be tied here. The Pacific Ocean is mastered by, by traders in the 20th century. And East Asia begins to become the place that's catching up rapidly on the West. So you've got this back and forth right through history. Geography drives development. But as it does so, development changes what the geography means. And, and that, that's why history is such a mess, I think. So I want to bring that to today, you know, mm -hmm. and, and the changing meaning of geography today. And I think we probably need to introduce the five horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so maybe you can say a little bit about the, the five horsemen and, uh, and, and tell us a little bit how you see geography once again uh, changing its meaning today. This is a really long story, this changing meaning of geography, but it's also one which has accelerated dramatically over the last few hundred years. And um, the meaning of geography, I would say, is changing faster now than it ever has before. And perhaps it's changing so fast now, some people would say, that geography is beginning to lose its meaning altogether. And for some people, um, there are some people in the world today uh, who live so much in a digital world that traditional concerns about space have almost disappeared for them. And these, of course, these are mostly people in the richer countries in the world at the upper end of the income distribution. If you live in Afghanistan, where um, strategic reasons have made your country a place that great powers will fight over. Um, this, these, geography really, really matters to you. But if the 21st century really does see development soaring up toward levels multiple times higher than we've got today, my guess is that one of the big things that will happen is that geography will, for most purposes, cease to mean very much over the next 100 years. And of course, the big question is, will that happen? Will development soar up to these high levels? Or will it not? Uh, and if it doesn't, what is likely to happen instead? And this is where your question about these five horsemen of the apocalypse, where this really comes in. Because uh, like, uh, you could say the big story of the last 15,000 years has been of steadily rising social development all over the world, really. But 
it hasn't risen consistently. And every so often you'll get these great collapses where development will fall by 10% even more, catastrophic for the people living through it, rates of mortality shoot up, lifespan shrink, standards of living fall, violence increases. It's terrible. Um, and every time in history there's been one of these great collapses, uh, seems to me the same five factors have been involved, which I, I took to calling the five horsemen of the apocalypse. The first of them is uncontrollable migration on a scale that societies of the day just can't deal with. The second of them, which often comes on the back of the migration, is new forms of epidemic disease, which are often created by merging disease pools from areas that have previously been distinct, um, producing new diseases that very few people have evolved antibodies to fight. The third of um, the horsemen is the collapse of states and governments in wars. As you know, huge migrations are going on, diseases are wiping out sometimes a quarter, a third of the population, governments disintegrate, everything breaks down. The fourth of them, often driven by government breakdown, is famine. A trade routes collapse with nobody there to police them anymore. And then the fifth of the horsemen, which is always there but always in a slightly different way, is climate change. Um, in, it gets in, you know, it's driven by external factors usually, but gets involved with the other four horsemen in complicated ways. And when you get all five together, you, you normally, not always, but normally will get these big social collapses. And the scary thing, of course, is you, you open a copy of The Economist on Newsweek or whatever it might be. Um, it's hard to get through the whole weekly edition of these things without some mention of all five of the horsemen of the apocalypse. I mean, it's not crazy, I think, to suggest that we might be facing the greatest social collapse of all during the 21st century. I mean, that's what's so fascinating here, right? Because in some ways, your social development index points to, you know, we're going to be uh, going from 1,000 to 4,000 points. And, uh, you know, imagine the prosperity. Imagine how fantastic life is going to be at the same time that the horsemen might be here. Yes. And so, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a contradiction. Obviously, there's only so much we can say about the future. But I think you're, the aim of all this is to sensitize our eyes on what to watch. Is that right? Yes, I think so. Yeah, I mean, let me be even more depressing for just a moment. In some ways, you know, talking about a great social collapse, five horsemen of the apocalypse in the 21st century, I'm talking about exactly the kind of things we see in the 14th century or in the 2nd century AD or going back all the way to 2200 BC. We can document these sorts of things happening. And yet it's going, if this does happen, it's going to be very different. And two, I say two big differences. One of them is that in the past, every time there's been great collapses going on, there's been lots and lots of separate kind of natural experiments going on around the world. Like you get these agricultural societies pressing against the limits of what can be done in an agricultural society without having an industrial revolution. Some of them solve the problem and have an industrial revolution, but most of them don't. And in the larger scheme of things, you can say, well, it's terrible to live through a social collapse, but there's always somebody else somewhere else in the world in a position to continue and you know, keep running the experiment. Now we live in an increasingly globalized world, and the challenges facing us now operate on really a global scale. You know, we're dealing with you know, climate change, um, global terrorism, you know, endless lists of things operating on a global scale. It's like we've winnowed down the number of experiments until there's only one left. We get one chance to get this right. Then the second thing, the really scary thing, um, is that in the past, when you look at episodes of enormous turmoil in the world, and especially episodes of one of the things you always see is massive increase in the amounts of violence, the amounts of you know, all-out total wars between societies. And these in the past, these have been terrible wars. I mean, say the violence at the fall of the Roman Empire.
Empire, the Han Dynasty in China, these were terrible things. Now we have nuclear weapons. And I would say this is the one big thing to worry about in the world. I mean, climate change is a terrible thing. It's going to impact our ways of life in all sorts of ways. But it is not going to kill everybody. Nuclear weapons, we actually, we, we can't kill everybody right away. This is the good, the good news. For every 20 warheads in the world in 1986, there's now only one. Yay, good news. Um, the bad news is that they're so much better than they used to be. And also, we can build them all again really, really quickly if we really want to. And we just don't know what will happen if we let them all off at once. And it's it's quite possible we could actually end all life on Earth. So you know, that that's a really scary scenario. If you look at the world in the 20th century AD, you know, the most, most violent century uh, in history, two world wars are fought, nuclear weapons are used, genocides are committed, yeah, terrible, terrible stuff. Somewhere between 100 million and 200 million people died violently during the 20th century, out of about 10 billion people who lived. So our rate of violent death had fallen to 1% to 2% from the 10, 15, 20% range that you would have had if you lived in the Stone Age. This is an extraordinary transformation. And it seems to me one of the biggest things that's happened in the whole of human history. And also, I think, a cause for enormous optimism. I mean, I was talking a moment ago about the potential for mass violence and destruction in the 21st century. I think the, the, the happy lesson about world history is that we have learned to a great extent to master violence. And this gives me some reason for optimism that maybe in the 21st century we will be able to master violence and not destroy ourselves completely. Ian Morris, this has been a delight. It's been worth the wait. Thank you so much for, uh, <laughs> Thank for making Thank the time. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> Producer Mike Osborne with Professor Ian Morris, who thinks and talks in full paragraphs. It's kind of amazing, especially to me, because I mostly think and talk in fragments. Okay, our next story is a great example of exactly what Ian was talking about, how geography and environment can have a big impact on the fate of a society. Our producer, Miles Traer, brings us this one. What happened to Native Americans following European colonization is one of the great tragedies of history. Millions died from smallpox, war, death marches, and relentless persecution. From today's perspective, it's easy to think that most of these cultures have been lost. But within certain tribes, such as the Navajo, historians, anthropologists, and geographers have found surprising examples of cultural retention. Ronan Arthur is a PhD student at Stanford, and before he started grad school, he studied geography at UCLA with Professor Jared Diamond, who's well known for his books Collapse and Guns, Germs, and Steel. Ronan and Jared Diamond specifically studied the Navajo tribe, and as Ronan explains, one measure of cultural retention is how many people speak the native language today. In 1492, uh, the Navajo population would not have been more than, say, five to 10,000 individuals. And in 2000, the Navajo population grew to be about 300,000, nearly half of whom um, speak the Navajo language. And this number, this, this number of uh, native speakers of Navajo is actually more than all the uh, speakers of all the other native languages of the lower 48 states of the United States. In 2011, Ronan and Jared Diamond published a perspective in the journal Science that outlined some of the cultural and geographic factors at play. 
They wanted to understand why the Navajo story runs counter to that of most other Native American populations. The Navajo live in the American Southwest, and during the period of European expansion, they remained fairly isolated. For centuries, there were no major trails or railways cutting across the region, so the Navajo had comparatively less contact with Europeans. This was beneficial because it cut down their exposure to diseases like smallpox. On the other hand, the Navajo were not so isolated that they were cut off entirely from trade and development. According to Ronan, they existed in a sort of optimal, intermediate state of isolation. If the Navajo were so far away from the Spanish that they had no interaction with them whatsoever, they would not have been able to acquire the livestock, the metal tools, these other sorts of technologies that, that really helped them out in the future. So they were close enough to the Spanish to acquire those things, close enough to the pub, other Pueblos to acquire their technologies in their ways as well. But they weren't so close as to develop um, a dependency on the Spanish or, or, other, um, or other governments, as you might, might see with, you know, say, the Western Apache. Other environmental factors are at work here. The Navajo didn't have gold or silver on their lands, but instead they had resources like oil and uranium, resources that became much more valuable in the 20th century. By that time, Native Americans were facing less persecution from the United States government. But geographic factors aren't the only reasons the Navajo population is significantly larger today. The Navajo also have a unique cultural fluidity. They have a willingness to absorb and integrate ideas from outside groups. The Navajo are well known for being a very flexible group with their uh, tribal identity and their ability to selectively borrow technologies, uh, customs and practices from other groups without sacrificing their, their identities. The Navajo initially learned farming from Pueblo groups. Later, when they encountered the Spanish, they traded for sheep, and their culture changed. One of the things we see in the oral tradition of the Navajo and how the world is created is a, a figure called Spider Woman who you know, weaves t things together. And that's interesting because weaving is central to the Navajo uh, culture and customs, but weaving didn't come until after they had sheep from the Spanish. So this is a relatively recent um, acquisition, and yet we already see it very deeply in the, in the culture and in the oral tradition. All of these factors, both environmental and cultural, create a compelling explanation for why the Navajo have had a different fate from other Native American tribes. But it's important to note that, like all of history, this is just an interpretation. The story that Ronan and Jared Diamond present was pieced together by talking to researchers, Navajo leaders, park rangers, and others in the field. Even so, they acknowledge that there are limitations. There's only so much we can know looking back in time. The problem with history, though, is that we can never know exactly why things happen the way they happen. The most interesting questions about history are, well, this, this we see happen. Why did that happen? And unfortunately, the world is so complex that we can't really disentangle all the factors that, that, that make history. Um, and we only get one trial run at history. So it's not a very good laboratory experiment because you can only do it once. In our previous segment with Ian Morris, we explored the idea that geography helps explain the shape of human history. But social development also changes the meaning of geography. The Navajo's optimal isolation, their mineral resources that become more valuable in the 20th century, and their cultural fluidity are all examples that fit within this framework. 
the meaning of geography changes as humans become more sophisticated at organizing societies and extracting what they want from nature. But in today's world, with our megacities, rocket ships, globalization, and amazing technological advances, the big question is, are we now free from nature? Or is this separation just a fantasy? We are not free from nature. We tend not to think that we affect the environment and the environment then affects us and that we have a relationship and an interaction with it. We tend to think we have, we have harnessed it and therefore we now control it and therefore we can do what we like with it. Um, but in fact, we are still changing it and it is, it is then affecting us in turn. Okay, that's it for this week's show. Next week on the podcast, this very podcast you're listening to right now, we will be talking about water, big water, where it's stored, how it got there, and how it's moving. Well, I always compare the challenges we face in managing and understanding our groundwater supply to the challenges doctors were facing 100 years ago. We need to advance the use of earth imaging methods so that earth imaging can play the same critical role in ensuring the health of our groundwater systems that medical imaging plays in ensuring human health. One of the things that I realized to I guess some surprise is that the mechanism through which Antarctica is melting is not what we expected it to be. So we really don't know how Antarctica is melting. That's next week, right here on Generation Anthropocene. Don't miss it. Subscribe to us on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud. And before I get to our credits this week, I have one little request for you, dear listener. If you listen to Gen Anthro and you like what we're doing, it would be so great if you could go to iTunes and leave us a review. We would really, really deeply appreciate it. Okay, here's the credits. Our show is produced by Miles Trayer, Mike Osborne, and me, Leslie Chang. Our theme music is by Maserati. We want to thank Pam Matson, Dean of Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. We also want to thank Tom Hayden. This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is www.genanthro.com, and we tweet at Gen Anthropocene. In fact, we tweet quite a bit, sciencey things and otherwise. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. From cavemen to Pizza Hut. From hunter-gatherers to curly fries. From homo erectus to disco. From homo habilis to... You are still going! From homo habilis to microprocessors.